Hello and welcome. I'm Brian Pace Braga, and you're listening to Building Business and Balance Conversations with BPB. I created this podcast for anyone looking for insight, mentorship, and guidance from someone who's been there and back again on the road to success. I'm so excited to bring the most brilliant thought leaders and friends on air with me to get real about what it means to build business and balance and how you define your own success. I'm so excited to bring you this episode featuring an incredibly humble, yet one of the most ambitious entrepreneurs I've been fortunate enough to work with, Gerard Barron. Gerard is the CEO and chairman of The Metals Company. As many of you know, I've been very close to this company, continued to be a large shareholder, and was a previous board member. In this episode, we talk about pioneering a new industry and Gerard's ambitions for the future of metals production, the booming demand for battery metals as the energy transition forges ahead, the trade-off between land-based mining versus harvesting polymetallic nodules from the seafloor, the role recycling will play in battery metals going forward, Also unpack the resource of polymetallic nodules held by the metals company in the Clary and Clipperton zone and how TMC plans to extract its resources in the most efficient way with the lowest environmental impact. The extensive money TMC is allocating to the scientific research is imperative to understand just how the company is thinking about forging ahead as it makes its way into becoming hopefully a very material supplier of battery metals in the world as we move forward. As Gerard mentions, it takes a little naivety, a lot of persistence, and a strategy to make this all a reality. I hope you enjoy it. You know, this green transition that I've been talking about for a decade is now here. People believe it. It's going to happen. Thank you, Elon Musk, for kickstarting it. Because now all the other guys, you know, are jumping on the bandwagon. But what they're starting to realize is that you can have a desire to do this, but if you don't have the metals, you can't build the batteries and you're going to be selling diesel cars again. So, so for those people that do secure supplies, they're going to wipe the floor with the others, you know, and so it's going to be very interesting to see. Well, Gerard, good morning. Uh, happy Sunday morning to you and uh thank you for taking the time to to have this conversation with me um you know i think for so many reasons this is an important conversation to have uh firstly because i've been such a believer in uh in what what you've embarked on what in some ways we've embarked on been as supportive uh as i can be the last five years in um in building out an entire new metals um, industry. Um, and, you know, five years feels like yesterday when we met. And, uh, you know, here we are five years later with such incredible progress in what you've set out to do. And I just think it's important, uh, well, A, I'm looking forward to this conversation, B, um, you know, given some of just the volatility that exists in the public markets today, I think that, you know, market participants can easily get caught up in, in, in the noise. And uh, what I wanted to accomplish today is really hear from you 
um, learn more about you um, and, and get to know, you know, your incredible and ambitious vision um, and, and just further understand, you know, where we're going from here. So good morning to you and thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here, Brian. Yeah, thank you. And um, you're right, five years ago we met and that was right at the time, if you remember, because I'd provided a lot of the financing for the business and what I hadn't provided, I'd helped organize. And, and But it kind of needed a reset and I remember meeting you and your energy where you were in life, you know, it was a really, it was, it was a pretty important moment for me actually, because I needed to recapitalize the company, but, but I also needed some energy beside me because, you know, I guess as we're going to talk about today, this is a big old mission, a big old mission. It takes capital, but more important than anything else, it takes belief, you know? So great yeah. to be with you today. Well, thank you. I mean, I, uh, I'm definitely a believer and, um, you know, coming from my background of, of, of natural resource development and financing, um, you know, in my mind, this, this, this absolutely is not a, if it's a, when mm. having said that, um, you know, I think, well, you're in it every day, but, um, this, this type of industry building, I think humbles definitely humbles me being on the on the uh, on the outskirts of, of of the daily of the daily grind, but you know I think that's really <clears throat> where where I want to start today is you know uh, I love hearing from an entrepreneur you know why you know what is your why why are you getting up every day and embarking on building a industry that may represent somewhere around five or 10% of the metals that we require every day. And I know that's a general number. Maybe it'll end up being a little bit more, maybe it'll be a little bit less, but the magnitude of what you're trying to accomplish, why are you doing this? Well, I'll, I'll say if we're successful, just to correct something, I hope it's a lot more than 10%. I hope the future of metal supply for our future is going to come from the oceans because we're going to be able to prove that producing battery metals in particular from our polymetallic nodules can, can happen with such a lighter planetary touch and societal touch compared to the land-based alternatives. But, but to answer your question, why? Well, so I was... I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I started my first company back in university. I grew up on a dairy farm in Australia. Um, I never knew anything else other than doing my own thing. You know, I always wanted to buck the trend a little bit. And then I've been very lucky to grow some great companies. Um, one I had started in 2001 and with some friends, I grew that to 30 countries around the world. And it was a great success. But along came 2014. Uh, I'd already invested substantially in Deep Green, as it was then, now, now the metals company. 
But I, I started to pay more attention to climate change, and I thought, okay, what's next? You know, I've 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 had many companies, uh, successful companies. Uh, how can I make an impact? And for some people, like yourself, I guess it comes at an earlier age. For me, I was, you know, that was I was approaching my uh, you know mid forties, and I was thinking. What do I want to do? I, I've made some money. I had invested in Deep Green. I started to really pour into the data behind climate change. And I started, to, even though I'd invested, it, it dawned on me just how important uh, opening up a new supply of these metals was going to be if we were going to decarbonize. And so I kind of just grew into it, if you like. And it also came at a time in my life, I was going through a, uh, a, a divorce. And so, you know, some people would call it a midlife crisis. I was kind of resetting the things in life for me. And, you know, this mission just came at a time when my kids had grown up. I was missing, you know, the fact that there were children any longer. And this became my child, you know, this became where I could direct an enormous amount of energy. And then, um, and so, yeah, you're right. It's, it's getting a disruptive new industry started is challenging. And, you know, thankfully, I didn't know what lay ahead. I knew it was going to be tough. But if I'd known what laid ahead, maybe I would have been not as committed as I am now because it's been a, it's been a pretty tough journey. But, oh, my God, it's, it's so the right thing to do. You know, it's so the right thing thing to be doing and so you know i guess from my perspective um you know and i, I know you wanted to talk a bit about well how, how do we get a, a new industry started and you know so it's got to come through that passion and belief it's got to come by having the right team around you my tribe as we call one another you know because there are so many people that want to stop your progress or knock you for what you're doing that it's important to have a quality team of people around you who are driven by the same mission that are also able to execute and so we have a phenomenal team inside the company and also our shareholders you know uh, the, the shareholders who've certainly backed me into this project you know they're here for long term you know they're committed people and um, yeah so it's got all the elements this one yeah, I think um, naivety can be such a beautiful thing when it comes to uh, <laughs> disruption and innovation. I find myself often, um, you know, admitting to myself naive optimism. But you know, I think I think we're all at times, yeah, put put in these places, you know, to to um, to push something forward. This one specifically that you're you've embarked on is just it's just a big one and, and i think you know I, I mentioned big multiple times now can you can you walk can you walk us through um what what, what does this look like you know in the vision that you have not just for the metals company potentially the world and, and why are these metals so important you know to our now daily lives in the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, 2050s, as we head toward 
net zero mm-hmm. and transition our our economy into into a, a, a digital economy. Yeah. Well, let me start with the why. Um, so, as you and I understand, but it always surprises me how often people don't aren't aware of how metal intensive the transition away from fossil fuels is going to be. And of course, that's because electric cars run on batteries and, you know, to, so they, they have a lot more of these metals contained in them and to generate a megawatt of offshore wind power requires nine times more metal than generating a megawatt from coal power. And so when you start adding up all of these metal needs, you know, and I think probably the most reliable source is the International Energy Agency, who have estimated that to meet the the demands of the green transition, we're going to have to increase extractive industries, mining, by between five and 600% per annum. Now, that's a lot. Last year, the mining industry generated 190 billion tons of waste. And just to put that in context, municipal waste globally was 2 billion tons. So two compared to 190, and we're looking to increase that between five and six times per annum. And so the impacts of land-based mining are horrendous because we're having to go to more out of reach places. We're having to go into our very biodiverse carbon sinks, like where we're getting our nickel growth from. And, and those impacts, when looked at through a, a lens of a life cycle analysis, so we're not just talking about you know, the CO2 impact, we're talking about sequestered carbon, we're talking about the impact on fresh water systems, we're talking about the impact on, uh, from tailings that are generated and the waste that is generated and, and the fact that you need to move communities or encroach on the lives of indigenous communities, in some cases communities that had barely seen white men. Yet here we are in our desperate desire to, to decarbonize, we're pushing into their backyard. And so the need is to look at all of this growth in metal extraction through the the lens of a life cycle analysis and say, well, how can we meet those metal needs as forecast by the International Energy Agency with the lightest planetary and societal touch? And it ain't going to come from land, right? You know, and, and so when I think about, you know, what our potential is, you know, I, I think 70% of the planet is covered in water, right, in, in our oceans. And so it doesn't make much sense that those oceans probably don't have a, a supply of these metals. And, you know, the other thing that I think is really important that people appreciate is that this is a push towards circularity because we need to stop extractive industries in the long term. You know, we, we need to get focused on the fact that recycling needs to be part of our societal construct. But recycling is something that we have to be mindful of now, but it can't meet the needs for this green transition. And in fact, the International Energy Agency said that by 2040, recycling might contribute 10% of the global metal requirements. The other 90% 
heavy mined is going to be much higher than it is today has to come from extractive industries, mining. And so, you know, when I look at how much, how big can we grow this then? Well, firstly, it's important for people to understand that we're still in the exploration phase. You know, we're still going through all of the environmental uh, research uh, to make sure that we can understand the impacts, that we, can, we have a strategy for mitigating those impacts. Uh, the fact that we can then understand those impacts and compare them to the known impacts of land-based extractive industries. So that's the phase we're at right now. But I can report that those studies are coming along tremendously well. You know, the signs are very, very encouraging um, that this will be, <clears throat> is the right thing to be doing. And well, if we think about circularity, it's the, the, the challenge is now, how can we get this supply of metals into the system as quickly as we can? Because car batteries are going to be recycled, providing they're made of the right stuff. You know, if you're making a battery cathode of nickel and cobalt and manganese, it's going to be recycled. And so um, we think we can grow what we're doing in the longer term to be the number one supplier of nickel, of cobalt and manganese globally. So it's a big ambition that we have. And, and what we told the, uh, the market in our, in our SEC file documents is that just by developing the Nori D asset, which is about just over 20% of our defined resource, we will produce 120,000 tons of, of nickel and about 90,000 tons of copper and about 10,000 tons of cobalt and 3 million tons of manganese. Now that's just, just over a fifth of our defined resource. So there's no doubt we can grow that more aggressively. And, but the most important thing is that we complete our environmental studies and then we get into production just to show the market how we're going to do that. The fact that it's all very feasible and possible. And then, you know, we can get some more help to scale this at a much faster pace. What are, what are the timelines in your mind uh, for the next, let's say, 24 or so months? What, what are you hoping to achieve with the team? And, and where do you think there are, you know, de-risking events that will start to unlock the value that you obviously see um, in, in, this, in this project, in this company? Mm. Well, we are on track to lodge our application to move from exploration to exploitation in early Q3 next year. So, you know, that's not far away. You know, in 18 months' time, we'll be submitting our environmental impact study. Uh, we will have completed all of the offshore pilot trials. In fact, our boat is on the water now. Um, about to head to the North Sea for some trials, and it will then sail over to the CCZ. Um, we've completed much of our onshore pilot processing work. We, um, so, but the big focus is then pulling that all together because, you know, I think, as you know, the strategy that I implemented was keep the core team small and tight. And so now we're less than 40 people but we've probably got about 500 people working on the project right now. And they come through our partners like All Seas, 
through our science research program. You know, we have the Natural History Museum. We have Leeds University. We have uh, University of Hawaii National Oceanography Center. Uh, we've just hired the CSIRO down in Australia. So we have like a big team of people that are helping us bring this environmental uh, piece of research together. And so there's no doubt that as we move forward, there are some project milestones that, the, that our investors will be able to see. And as a result of those, gain more confidence that we're moving towards production. Um, the other thing that investors will want to see is that we can get into production without having to write out big checks. And I've always told the market that we want to be adopting a capital light approach. And that means inviting in expertise in the offshore side, people who own boats and operate them, particularly for the offshore oil and gas industry, and who are looking for a new industry. Um, and the same with regards to shipping and the same with regards to the processing of nodules when they arrive on shore into battery metals. So I think what the market can expect, and I, I mentioned this in our last quarterly uh, in 2022, is some real tangibility around the economics of those deals. Because everyone knows that we already have a partner in all seas who've stated that their desire is to move from the pipeline industry into collection of polymetallic nodules because they have for 35 years amassed a tremendous amount of expertise and experience operating in the deep ocean, laying pipe for oil and gas. So, you know, we, but we have many other companies like them who would also like to work with us to help us collect these rocks from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And the same on the onshore processing side. Um, you know, we've been talking to people for quite a while um, and I've been really pleasantly supply, surprised how enthusiastic partners are to come and become part of this ecosystem. And so this year, and I hope it'll be in the first half, we'll have some exciting news to share with people and, and, and to be able to articulate how the economics will work. And I think people will be pleasantly surprised. So that's going to show people how we get into production. And, and then it's about other quality names. And of course, where could those quality names come from? Well, they could be EPC companies who you know, want to work with us to, because one of the great opportunities is for us to build some onshore processing in, on, in North America. Could be in Canada, could be on USA soil. And, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a longer term horizon. You know, we're probably talking 2027 before that's in production. Um, the deals we'll announce this year will be more focused around repurposing existing infrastructure. So we don't have to go and rebuild it all uh, where we can send our nodules and they can process it. And then, of course, the big one is consumer facing brands. So if I'm an investor and you know, I'm looking for that consumer facing brand who understands the demand supply conundrum, who says, okay, we've done our homework. Uh, we actually think this is the best option. And by the way, there's nowhere else to get these metals. And, and we saw this weekend uh, published in the Guardian how you know, land-based mining is gonna continue to have hand grenades lobbed in 
now is the chromium six plus issue in Indonesia, because when you expose nickel laterite ores to weather, the runoff is poisoned, is poisoned. It'll poison everything in its path. And if you remember the Aaron Brockovich movie, uh, that was all about chromium six plus. It's the same issue here. So the thing about land-based mining is it hasn't been very exposed. But as you start to expose some of the environmental and societal challenges, people are going to understand that it's not very comfortable, you know. And so as we educate people, I think it's going to, particularly car companies, see it better than anyone. You know, you don't want to be pretending to save the planet by driving an electric vehicle if it's impacted the lives of indigenous communities and, and our planet's carbon sinks and biodiversity and so on. Yeah, <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Let me, let me try. <laughs> so as a, as, a, as a challenger to this, uh, and if someone said to you that what you're embarking on is bad for the environment, what, if any, cases do they have um, that would make that valid? Well, <clears throat> I'm sure your listeners will know there are many people who say that. <laughs> there are many people who say, Jared, the metals company, you know, you're going to ravage our oceans. And so, you know, when, when those people come at me, firstly, there's a sector of society that is just not worth having that conversation with. Thankfully, it's a very, very small percentage. They're just, um, they're people that think we can recycle our way or we can degrowth our way to a better future. But if you unpack the degrowth argument, you know, once again, the, the people that will be most disadvantaged from degrowth will be the impoverished. You know, there are still 3 billion people on the planet who can't afford a bicycle. And so... Degrowth is like saying, look, we tried growth, didn't work out so well, so all of the impoverished will figure something else out. We'll be back to you. Well, that's not very fair. You know, and I think one of my motivators has always been inequality. You know, why am I so fortunate and the people around me so fortunate that we live in a city that, or, or environments that have running fresh, clean water? that we can safely go to the tap and turn it on and drink or that we can turn the lights on. It was just good fortune, right? And so why do we have this fortune yet other people don't? And so we have to address inequality. And the other thing I would say, so, so there are some people that if you can't get over that bare statistic, which there is no way of making the math work to say recycling and degrowth can solve this problem because the, the degrowth will just lead to civil unrest and war. And, uh, and recycling is just not going to get there. As you heard me say before, 10% of 2040 demand will be met through recycling. But for the people that have a natural suspicion, what I say to them is I don't blame you. You know, If you understood the land-based mining industry and thought we were going to go and do that in the oceans... Firstly, I'd be horrified as well. And there's no way in the world I'd be associated with a project that did what you do on land in the ocean. But that's where it's very important to unpack the aspects of this resource. You know, as you know, they're 
they're rocks. Think of them as golf balls lying on a driving range. And our job is to collect them with the minimal impact and the greatest efficiency. And so it's very different to what land-based mining is. Um, these nodules are located in the abyssal zone. It's the most common area on the planet. It's literally, there is no flora there at all. There are no plants. There are, the, the fauna that is there is bacteria living in the sediment. And if we measure that, it measures at around 10 grams of biomass per square meter. And most of that is bacteria that lives in the sediment. Now, if you compare the alternative where all the growth in nickel production is going to come from, there's around 30 kilograms of biomass per square meter. And it's also the home to our carbon sinks. It's also, uh, you've got, you generate enormous amounts of tailings and waste, which you have to do something with. You, sometimes they get dumped in the oceans or the rivers. Uh, people are talking about building tailings dams, but unfortunately it's, it's where those countries sit is right on the fault lines. And so there's a lot of seismic activity. And so my, our challenge is to, to help people take a slightly deeper understanding around the issues because the headline of protect the oceans is something that anyone can get behind. I get behind that. But of course, the biggest risk to the oceans is global warming. And of course, what's driving global warming? It's CO2 emissions. Do I think there are bigger issues at play? Or I think there are issues as big, you know, some of the ones I mentioned before, you know, if, if, if we're going to poison all of the people in these indigenous tribes as a result of getting the metals to build our batteries so we can drive them around the streets of San Francisco, well, that's just ridiculous. And we'd have to stop now. So, so what I say to those people is, it's, it's okay to be suspicious. You're right to be suspicious. But come with us on this journey. You know, just keep an open mind and, and get, do some work, do some thinking around it, do some, read the research reports. And, you know, it's only when you fully gather all of this data, you know, and the data that's being prepared by the science, you know, because we, we often hear people say they want more science. I agree. Like last year, we spent more than $50 million on our science research program alone. And that's to get the answers to some of the questions. And you can't just make up the answers. You've got to go out and spend tens of millions of dollars and, and engage the best scientists in the world. And then you need to pull it all together in conclusions and in publish them in peer-reviewed papers. And so if you look at the cadence of material that has been published now in peer-reviewed journals, it's really encouraging. And it's all providing the answers. But... But look, it's, there's no doubt it's a communication challenge. And um, people often refer to the nuclear industry, of course, that nuclear was shut down by, by people who instilled the fear of God into people by the potential danger of nuclear power. Yet had we embraced nuclear power, we certainly wouldn't have all the CO2 emissions um, and some of the environmental devastation that we are today having to deal with. You mentioned $50 million being spent on just, just science research. Um, how much has been spent on the project to date? Um, Cause I think it is uh, just as a reminder to people, you know, how much has been spent 
to get us where we are today. Um, and actually, when you take that into consideration and the time that's been spent, we're actually, I think, in my interpretation, the closest we've the company has ever been to unlocking an immense amount of value when you consider the exploration time and money spent and the highest risk nature of that to the exploitation time. Um, so can you walk me through that? Mm. So I, I often look back when I look at where we are today compared to when I first invested into deep green as it was. And I mean, at first it was a $3 million check and then a $5 million check. And then, you know, some more followed that. Um, but I all, I asked all my mates to invest as well. Um, and I look at where we were back then compared to where we are now. And Oh my God, it, it is phenomenal where we are now. You know, we have defined resource of 1.6 billion tons. You know, we have moved some of that resource from inferred to indicated and measured. We've engaged amazing partners. We've got an environmental impact program that's, you know, coming to its conclusion. We've assembled an amazing team of people. We've, we've, contributed to the regulatory environment uh, such that we know that the final piece of the jigsaw, the exploitation code will be in place next year. We've built tremendous partnerships with developing nations like uh, Nauru, the kingdom of Tonga and Kiribati. And so, you know, the, where this company is at today is I think in a very, very strong position. Before we went public last year, we had raised about $200 million. The go public raised less money than we hoped, but we still raised $137 million. So in total, we raised, you know, we've raised $237 million. So it's, you know, and we've, we've, we sit on top of the world's largest undeveloped battery metal deposit you know, which will, I think, be very good for shareholders as we deliver on all of these milestones as we head towards permitting and then production. Because, you know, people often say to me, if it's so good, Jared, why isn't the, why are the big boys in there? And it's like, well, let me tell you. The first reason is we don't want them in there right now. We haven't invited them to come in because the big guys tend to come later when there's more certainty. They tend to want a pathway to control. And for us, you remember this, Brian, we had many boardroom discussions around this topic. We do not want to lose control of the project because often what the big guys will do is they'll buy a pathway to control and then they will speed it up or slow it down so it sinks in with the rest of their development portfolio. Whereas we really wanted to get this asset into production as quickly as we could. And so, you know, being, remaining independent was really, really important to us. But do I talk to the leaders of those majors? Of course I do. You know, we, uh, 
we're going to need them at some stage in the future, or they're going to present opportunities or will present growth opportunities to them. They have expertise that would be really helpful when we're scaling from small project into really massive project. And so, yeah, I think they are all watching this very, very closely. And I think they're all saying, good on you, TMC. You're taking all the body blows for us. Uh, you're figuring out, <laughs> you know, all the hard, difficult to answer questions. And that's okay because, you know, we've got, um, we've got a plan that's solid. We've, we're, we're very committed and determined and we've got thick skin. We, we know what we need to do to get this into production and there will be a right moment to bring some of those bigger companies. Keep in mind, we do have Glencore, Maersk, and all C's already on the register. So it's not as though we're, we've got none of those businesses, but for us, it's been very important that we keep the company independent so we can make our own decisions. Thank you. And um, yeah, thank you for the insight on, on, on your, your strategic thinking. I think it's pivotal, absolutely pivotal to, um, to, well, any business, but I think um, this one, Specifically, um, you know, we we uh, we were talking actually earlier that we were in Dubai together, um, you know, almost a year ago, and uh, um, and then September, you know, um, well, for me personally, was such a you know euphoric moment to have a company that I, I loved so much. I still love so much. I believe in, uh, you know, the camaraderie that we've all built together as, mm. as, as shareholders and, you know, to be met with such headwinds going public, you know, I've never experienced that type of, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that type of, of, of pressure and stress. And I mean, I was, a, again, one, one step or two steps removed do you mind just walking through as, as best you can, as comfortable as you are with sharing what happened on the go public transaction, you know, to be very blunt, you know, this company to go public at north of a $2 billion valuation. It at one point was over $3 billion. Today, the market cap is somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million. Uh, and just to, to, to reiterate, around $300 million already of hard cash and I think 12 years of work has already gone into this business. Um, not to mention it's sitting on the world's largest battery metal deposit. Um, so as I say that, I even get a bit perplexed by everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But maybe let's just go back to even, even a war story for a fellow mm -hmm. entrepreneur listening to this um, and maybe some insight that you're comfortable with sharing. Um, on, 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 what, on what transpired? Sure. So we announced the deal on March 5, and um, that's March 5, 2021. And it kind of felt like we were the last deal through the gates. You know, the, the nickel price dropped 15% the next day because um, of some shenanigans going on in China. The... New um, SEC commissioner announced uh, he was going after SPACs. And so all of a sudden, SPACs went from being 
something that everyone wanted to find a way of participating in to all of a sudden no one wanted to participate. And then on top of that, we had a really aggressive letter writing campaign from some um, special interest groups who were trying to stop us because they saw that if we became public, then, you know, they would have less chance of stopping us. So they, they dragged everything out. You know, they tried to suggest that we had overstated our expenditure on um, regulatory spend, which was total nonsense. Um, we, just on that point, by the way, we, the, the, there was a different number reported, but that was from our auditors because we had, we used to report um, under IFRS and then to become an SEC regulated NASDAQ listed company, we had to move to GAP. So there was uh, uh, some changes there. And we just generally were up against it. You know, we had everyone swinging because they saw this was an opportunity to, to knock a tall poppy down. And so then finally, we thought, oh, well, we've weathered that storm, but we're still going to go to the market, receive our $330 million. And then it was, um, of course, the vote happened on September 3 at 11.30, the meeting was. I remember it very well. And um, my phone rang, this is 11.30 Eastern time, and my phone rang at 11.50. And... Um, it was my CFO on the line. He said, uh, Jared, I have the principal of this fund who had committed $200 million uh, on the line. I went, oh, that doesn't sound good because all the money was due that day as well. And we were on to people. You know, we'd been on to every single investor. Yep, money's coming, wiring, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the principal of this fund, uh, which we've has since been announced as Rama, said, I'm not going to be able to fund today. We'll aim to get it to you next week. It's like, yeah, no, you won't. That doesn't work. You know, we need the money today. And so, so then we had, oh my God, because of course, you know, we had some great banks involved. We had City who were managing the pipe. We had Namura on our side. We had a fantastic bank out of Norway, Fernley, who were a placement agent who we knew very well. And so there came, there was an expectation that, when people sign these pipe subscription agreements, they can fund. And so there was a lot of diligence done around these investors. And, and, and by the way, there'd been an enormous amount of contact between March and September as well, because I'd said to my CFO, make sure we stay all over these investors, you know, and particularly the big one, make sure that we're talking to them every other day. And that's exactly what we did. And they were collaborating with us. They were, helping make introductions. They were trying to negotiate an increase in their investment, which took up a lot of time and lawyers' money as well. And so for us to then get this news on the day that we should have been celebrating was, was gut-wrenching. And in fact, we then had to obviously call the Deep Green Board together. And, and we also had, I don't know, we probably had 60 lawyers working on it you know, feverishly, maybe there were more, um, plus bankers and everyone else, you know, for the next week. And we had to decide what is it that we're going to do? What's in the best interests of all of the shareholders? And, and you know, it's true that we upset some the other pipe investors because people had signed a binding pipe subscription agreement. There was no getting out of it. And so 
we held those investors to the agreement. And, you know, there were some people that didn't like that. Um, but we were in, on very firm footing when it come to our, came to our legal position. I, I've got to be honest, I didn't like it myself because I wouldn't have liked to have been treated the same way. But I had to, my fiduciary duty was to the Deep Green company of which I was the chairman and CEO and to its shareholders. And so, but I, and I also understood that we were still going to have enough money to keep the project moving. And what we announced to the market is that we'd have enough money to complete all of the environmental work, to complete all of the offshore pilot processing work, to complete all of the onshore pilot processing work, and to continue to build relationships that would serve us as we moved into production. And we've done all of that. And so then shortly after we listed, a, a nonsense short report came out, um, which we are uh, defending clearly. It's, you know, we have one of the world's best law firms doing it on contingency. Like the fact that they would do it on contingency means they have a super high um, outlook on likely success. And, you know, we, we just had everything thrown at us. You know, we had short report, not enough money, um, you know, because we know that just under two thirds of the register is in safe hands. So, so this part of the register that wasn't played havoc and, and clearly what we and I hadn't done enough of was lining investors up to buy the stock. And so we've now hired a great bank who's going to work with us on, on that. We've got non-deal roadshow starting, you know, soon. And we've got a lot of people who've, who've been, but when you see something decrease in value so much, it's only obvious that investors go, well, there's got to be something wrong with that. You know, mm -hmm. is there something wrong with it? It's like, I can tell you by hand in my heart that things are absolutely going to plan inside the business. There's just a massive disconnect with how investors are looking at it and how, you know, they've and valuing it compared to what's going on inside the business. The, the, the business is going tremendously well. Obviously the macro conditions have continued to improve. You know, this green transition that I've been talking about for a decade is now here. People believe it. It's going to happen. Thank you, Elon Musk, for kickstarting it because now all the other guys, you know, are jumping on the bandwagon. But what they're starting to realize is that you can have a desire to do this, but if you don't have the metals, you can't build the batteries and you're going to be selling diesel cars again. So, so for those people that do secure supplies, they're going to wipe the floor with the others, you know, and so... It's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah. <laughs> but that it was, was a tough a, experience, Brian. It was a tough was experience. A tough experience and, uh, for all of us, specifically yeah. you. Right? And uh, I commend you for your commitment. And I mean, that was, that was probably my greatest example of uh, whew, maybe, maybe persistence. And um, I remember you saying one thing, what uh, one lawyer said, you know, give me the probability of, oh, you asked him, give me the probability of us closing. And I think he said, he said 10% or. Uh, he said a number much lower, less lower than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and I think, I think it's important to, I guess it's right where we started this conversation. Um, I've found ways of creating, you know, value in, in my, in my financial life you know, being bold when others may be frightened and, and, 
and uh, or or you know and and rightfully so if you look at a stock chart and you don't peel the onion you know more you, you of course you'll see you know <laughs> a number of press releases that are lawsuits a stock chart that's you know very very scary to look at yeah but actually sometimes those reveal the greatest opportunities um and you know, I, I'm so thankful that you spent the time your Sunday morning with me today. Um, I hope that people get to know you better, get to understand the strategy better in the business, get to understand just how big this this opportunity and and how important this industry is for the planet. Um, and again, I've lived and breathed extractive industries. Um, you know, most of my adult life. Um, I think sadly, sometimes out of sight, out of mind is, is a human, uh, a natural human, um, experience characteristic. Um, and because of so much of our metals that I think many people and I do at times take for granted, um, are out of sight, out of mind. Well, it comes back to one of your major principles, which I struggle with in my life too, inequality. Why is it okay that a community in <clears throat> Indonesia, in Central Africa, I mean, to think about, you know, this, the state of human rights in some of the factories, you know, looking back the last 10 years from companies that have, that have outsourced manufacturing, well, yeah, those are pretty dire you know, straights from a human rights perspective. Well, I think this is just as bad. And, and just because we're not, you know, buying whatever the latest product is that are, um, that are, you know, implementing tough human rights conditions that are not right um, and have changed over the last 10 years, I see the same thing happening in our metals industry over the next 10 years, which is exposure to what's actually happening on the ground at, at these extraction sites. Um, and I think, you know, everything that you're doing, um, you know, is, is, is bringing a whole new fresh set of eyes. And I guess, you know, one last comment would be, I think disruption has an opportunity to occur when a new set of eyes come into an industry. You know, and I think it's such a, it's such a breath, a uh, breath of fresh air for me, and has been since we first met, on how you have thought about the entire supply chain of your business, everything from collecting the nodules to transporting the nodules to processing the nodules, and eventually it coming into a recognizable place when it comes to a downstream product. But it's so big how you're thinking. You know, it might take naive optimists like me <laughs> to be an early, an early adopter. But what you're doing seems so obvious to me. So I want to thank you for everything you're doing um, and your persistence. You know, everything you're doing as a, as a, as a good-sized shareholder of this business, I'm even more thankful outside of, you know, being a stakeholder in this world, which we all are. Everyone listening to this, to this podcast is a stakeholder in this world. Um, and what you're doing is so pivotal. Um, one last question, where can we follow you? 
uh, and the company's journey? What are the social channels? Yeah, so you can follow us uh, at metals.co and at um, for our website. But obviously, you can follow me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Instagram um, and um, and Twitter, of course. But look, please come for the journey. I mean, this is going to be so exciting to see what we can do as we open up this industry. And, you know, I, I, I haven't mentioned it today, but I, I used to have a slide in my, my deck that showed the barrels of oil that were coming out of the Gulf of Mexico in 1960 and then I, in 40 years later. And as we all know, more than 30% of the world's oil and gas comes offshore now. I think it can be even more aggressive when it comes to nickel and cobalt and manganese. Um, maybe not copper, but, uh, but certainly those others. Like, this is a disruptive moment that we may not see again when it comes to the metals industry. And you know, what we've been able to do is to secure the best license areas in the one little patch where these nodules form in great abundance with the right mixture of metals. And so the best way to get exposure to it is through the metals company um, because, of course, the other license holders, uh, well, there's China. I doubt they're going to sell you their licenses um, mm. or Japan or Korea or other sovereigns. And so, yeah, look, it's, uh, it has to be a big idea, right? Like, and I encourage people listening that when you have the opportunity to do something difficult and challenging, you know, think long and hard about taking it on because it's the most frustrating and rewarding experience that you'll ever, ever have. And um, like the easy things are, the easy things are, they're not fun to do. Like this is about doing the challenging things because, and it takes um, a little bit of naivety, a lot of persistence, but a strategy, you know, and as we're building this business, we know where the flag on the top of the hill is. We're heading towards it. There's a lot of people coming at us from all different directions. Um, and, but we're going to get there. And I'm grateful for uh, you, you know, invited me onto your podcast. I'm grateful for the support you've always shown me and this project. And I, I hope as a result of today's recording, we'll have a whole lot more followers who want to come and be part of it, you know, cheer from the sidelines. Me too, matey. It takes, uh, takes, it takes a village. This one, this one may take a small city, but you know, we'll, 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 uh, yeah. we'll, yeah. uh, we'll continue. Yeah. Thank cool. you, George. Thanks for listening to Building Business and Balance with me, Brian Pacebrega. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and the wisdom of the guests I'm privileged to have met and worked with around the world. Subscribe to my series on iTunes for real, raw, and diverse discussions with thought leaders and pioneers on building business, balance, and defining your own success.